My name is Ivoma Okoro, and you are listening to the sixth episode of my storytelling podcast, Vega, a sci-fi adventure. If you're just joining me, here's what you need to know. You've missed a lot. If you've got enough time to go back and listen to the story from the beginning, I would highly encourage you to do so. If you've only got enough time to listen to a few episodes, start with episode three. If you've got only five minutes, spend every last one of them on the end of the last episode. And if you've got no time but the present, here's the best I can do for you for TLDR. This story takes place in the fantasy future. It's about a woman named Vega Rex. She hunts and kills the world's worst super criminals, and on last week's episode, she was just coming home for the holidays, skipping up to her family at a religious festival, when this happened. This is a terror attack. And just as Vega realizes it, she looks up through the smoke and sees him. The shooter. He's so close, she can hear the crunch of his boots as he kneels. He folds his hand in front of him, as if in prayer. No, not as if. He is praying, whispering. Sibyllic. Unintelligible, except for this. Clear as day. He turns the gun on its side. His fingers dance over the safety switches. His thumb depresses the button for self-destruct, and he throws the weapon in the air. What happens next, Vega would only ever have the vaguest memories of. Because though she scrambles across the heart earth, putting distance between her and the blast that would kill them both, she isn't fast enough. The force of the blast catches her and launches her into the air like a rag doll. She's flying. She's falling. She's knocked out cold. And while Vega's out, before she wakes up, I see a golden opportunity here. There are actually a few things I need to show you before this story goes any further. A few unpleasant things that our girl Vega wouldn't necessarily love for you to see. So while she's unconscious, why don't you join me over here to the side. We're just going to step into my handy dandy time machine and close the door behind you. Thank you. I'm going to make a few inputs on the compass, Vega, age seven, perfect. And we'll make our first stop on the timeline of Vega's crazy little life. Oh, okay, we're moving, we're moving. Here we go, time travel. All right, let me just check. Okay, yeah, definitely, we're good. All right, come on, watch your step. Come, come. Join me in Vegas family house. I know, it's shocking. I said house just now, but what we've just stepped into is more like a chateau, a great estate, if you will, that includes 441 rooms and a fireplace for every day of the year. It was built thousands of years ago by over 1,800 workmen in the span of 15 years specifically for the Rex family, and the paintings, tapestries, and heirlooms decorating this place speak very loudly to this family's rich and storied history. As you can see in the high barrel vaulted ceilings, the architectural design resembles something of a cathedral. To worship what, you may ask? What indeed? Let's step inside one of the sitting rooms, into a room that feels much more contemporary, wouldn't you say? As you can see, this room is full of Rexes. I'm not great with estimating, what would you say, there's like 30 people or so in here, give or take? 
And don't worry, nobody can see us, nobody can hear us, but we can hear them right now, and we are seeing them in the eyes of our minds. So, go ahead, take a look around. There you see the adults talking to one another in various states of intoxication. There the kids are climbing over things, chasing each other around the room, screaming as children do. It's cozy in here. There's a big fireplace and a big fire going inside of it. A real one, not that fake digital thermal cast stuff they started doing in the other great houses. But more than that, this room is filled with the warm sense of familial tenderness. This family loves each other, you can tell. Who is that? Walking in the door. Hey, hey, it's a priest. Check out his white robes when he pulls off that overcoat. This man is not just any priest, though. He is their priest. That's Uncle Jackson. Well, he's Vegas' uncle. To some people in this room, Jackson is his son. To others, he's a cousin. To Galex, you guys remember Galex, Vegas' dad. You met him in episode two. To Galex, Jackson is an older brother. But it's totally fine if you want to think of Jackson as an uncle. This is Vegas' story, after all, and that is who we've been following around. Speaking of, where is that little cookie monster? Let's see. Oh, there she is. And of course, <laughs> of course, she's pushed her way to the front of the crowd of kids who have formed sitting impatiently on their knees around that giant armchair Jackson has taken his sweet time getting settled into. If you want some help truly appreciating the anticipation on sweet little seven-year-old Vegas face, think about that giddy look that kids get when they're waiting in line to sit on the lap of a mall Santa. Yeah, you totally see it now, right? So excited. Here's why those kids look like that. Because Jackson is a priest, and priests are one of the select few groups of people that get access into a place in their country called the Holy City. Inside the Holy City is the temple. You've actually already been to the temple. The council room where Vega met with the League Prophets in episodes 4 and 5 is inside there, as well as the chambers where Jackson and a handful of other priests have spent the last fortnight on a special retreat with the prophet-elect. Everybody in the family knows that when Jackson is on this yearly two-week trip, he's spending all that time listening to the utterings of the prophet-elect as Saibo himself whispers into that anointed ear which always meant one magical time of year, Jackson came home with a prophecy, one for each and every single person in the family. Now, not all families in Patraxis have a priest in it. These kids are lucky as hell, but they don't know that. And if they did, they wouldn't care. All they know is that they are fitting to be blessed. And Vega, not least of all, is greedy for that prophecy. Jackson begins. Pulling each child into his lap, one by one, he tells them what the prophet-elect heard Saibo say about them. Brixia, this summer, you are going to have an adventure every day. Weston, soon, you'll have a new favorite food. Uni, you'll grow three inches in three months. Boom, 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 he's knocking them out. And he's for real about these prophecies. They sound pretty light. Most of this stuff is fortune cookie level at most, and everybody knew that, but they were still fun to hear. And there were times somebody did get a big one. Like one time, Auntie Nadega's prophecy said that she was gonna win a golden frond for her book that she was writing about her last big case. And sure enough, when she published it, she won the frond the very next year. All right, it's time. It's Vegas' turn. She's practically vibrating with excitement. Watch her leap into Jackson's lap and stare up into his face. Now, he's looking down at her. Vega? <clears throat> okay, now hold on. I want you to step closer. Come right over here, because you're only going to catch this if you're like right up in here, like right where Vega is. Now, watch Jackson as he says this. See how his eyes don't quite connect with her. See how his smile falters and something in his face 
bobbles just for one split second. It is so subtle. And if you take one step back, if you weren't watching for it, you would miss it completely. But watch. Vega, this year you will have good fortune. This was the first year that it happened like this. This weird vibe that happens between Vega and Jackson. And two, immediately afterward, this overwhelming feeling of shame? Uncle Jackson has seemed excited to talk to everyone else, right? Didn't you feel that? Why did he seem so unsettled to talk to her? And why was her prophecy so vague and general when everyone else's was super specific? She's moving off his lap to go sit back on the floor, and you can almost see her thinking it with her squishy kid brain. Does Uncle Jackson hate me? Oof. Okay. We're gonna leave that there and get back in the machine. There's something I've gotta show you at age 15. Let's go. Let me check. Yep, we're here. Come out here. You have to see this. I know, this garden is literally insane. There are over 2,000 acres of greenery around us right now, and not a tree, not a flower, not a blade of grass is out of place. Every last element of nature has been arranged into an exacting symmetry and order in this aggressive display of power and dominance. That hedge bush is an exact rectangle and goes on for like another mile. Look down it, you can't even see the end, can you? These lawns are so beautiful, but it's too bad this place has an infestation. Not with bugs or anything, humans, children to be exact. Why do all these memories have so many kids? No matter, we're only worried about that one right now. Yep, that ratty 15 year old with her boots up on the table, smacking gum and drinking from a sky blue can of carbonated sugar that is Vega Rex and right now she is playing hide and go seek. Found. As I'm sure you've realized that girl is neither hiding nor seeking. Found. In fact what we see her doing is staring at a little screen with a blueprint of her house on it and the blueprint is crawling with a bunch of roving and glowing dots. Each of those dots represents a different cousin or family friend currently engaged in this game, the ones who have been found already, being tracked by the smart controls of the house, and the house is transmitting their location back to this little map for Vega to monitor. Note the wireless headset in Vega's ear. Let's listen to what she's communicating to the found ones over the link. Let's see, who else? Um, we haven't found Eggsy, right? Now where are you, Eggsy? Ha! I know. Tuck, take a left and go into the medical wing. It's fine, there aren't any adults in there right now. Okay. Go into the big lab. The green one? Yeah, yeah. Look inside the MRI tube thingy and tell Eggsy what's up. Found. Booyah! Sorry, there was an adult in there. Good luck. Yeah, that's right. The Rexes have a smart house that helps them play epic games of hide and seek. And because this is Patraxis, the house never really says much more than Found. Because Patraxin Tech is conscious free, the way it should be cough cough at the entire country of Knox and it's unnecessarily chatty tech. Oh, Vega's getting up. Let's follow her into the house. Yeah, he did. He got him.
Little fun fact for you, that moment right there, actually, was the beginning of a long and drawn-out grudge between two Rex boys that is still going on to this day. Which, I mean, really? Bears quite the testament to the human capacity for grudge holding, and oh, I don't know how bad the Rexes are at losing. Now, there are a lot of key differences between the way things work in Patraxes versus how they work in Knox, which is, if you remember, the country Vega was in in the first three episodes of the podcast. But I think you'd be surprised to know the similarities between these two countries. For instance, though the Rexes own this great house and have for centuries, nearly 80% of the material goods in this house are rented, and they have been since the dawn of the age of accessibility. Now, here's the link. There's a global corporation that advertises its CEO as a god of interior design in Knox, and that same corporation is the one the Rexes have been purchasing their furniture subscription from for years now. Except to Patraxans, this CEO just calls himself the CEO, pockets his units, and provides them with new furniture whenever they're feeling up for a change. And every time the Rexes would update their interiors, the Rex kids would basically get to play a new game of hide-and-seek within these walls. It certainly kept things interesting. Travi's still missing. Let's see. Oh, uh, Gina, I want you to head straight into the foyer. Yep, where the freelance acting troupe is doing the Legend Rex play for the plebeians. Don't be obvious. Don't be obvious. Check in their trunk behind that red curtain. Found. I'm a genius. Who's near the kitchens? Okay, all right. You know what? Doesn't matter. Both of you, go look in the stem cell beef lab because Luna's lips are probably blue by now. Am I right or is it a nod? Come on now. Real quick, I told you that Vega was playing hide and seek, but that wasn't completely true. That's basically the game, but in their world, they call it hunters and hoodlums. Guess who's the hunter right now and who are all the hoodlums? Now, as you know, hunters don't take prisoners. They don't let their hoodlums off with a slap on the wrist and put them in jail, though kids love that. They make sacrifices, offerings, if you will, and that's what Vega's fixing to do when she finds the last cousin. Now, I know how this may come across to you. It may seem like somehow Vega always had it in her head that she would be this crazy, amazing hunter and that everything she ever did in her life before then was just leading up to that. But that's actually not true. Believe it or not, at this point in her life, Vega honestly doesn't have any serious intentions of becoming a hunter. And that's because... Hmm, how do I put this? Um, Being a hunter is a highly respected thing in their culture. It puts you in a certain class. People who come from families like Vegas are already in that class, so they're not usually the ones clamoring for the opportunity to do Saivo's dirty work. For better or worse, everyone kind of knows and accepts that the kind of people who end up as hunters are those who come from places and families they're not trying to stick around, for lack of a better phrase. She doesn't know that on what seems like a whim, she's going to apply for the league's training school someday. Vega doesn't know that soon she's going to step inside the walls of the holy city for the first time in her life to undergo academy trials. She doesn't know that she's going to sign a non-disclosure agreement so binding that if she ever told anybody about what they made her do in those trials, she'd become league enemy number... I mean, not one. Probably like in the 400,000s. There's a lot of people on that hit list. But you get it. This is all just fun and games right now. Vega thinks she's going to design a sick line of skyships someday. These kids are bloodthirsty little barbarians, and she's really just doing this for the giggles. And then there was one. Cousin Milo. Not on the sky deck, not in the stables, not in the big or little nursery, which leaves only one place he would be. Boys and girls, it's time for the hunter to make an offering. 
she takes off, cutting through these halls like she's been launched out of a submarine. And the fast-growing crowd of wild-eyed little kids falling behind her make up the disturbed waters of her wake. Whoosh! Suddenly she's there, in front of the door of the most sacred place in the house, the meditation. Someone, one of the kids, hands her a sword, made of plastic, probably a last-minute accessory thrown into some cheap kid's costume, but the way she handles it, it might as well be Excalibur. It's the weapon she'll use to make the kill. She slips her feet out of her boots, presses a finger to her lips, places her hand on the door, and slides it open. Take the shoes off your feet. Yes, because the place we're standing is holy ground, but also because the shag carpet in here is the thickest, softest carpet your feet will ever feel. Not only that, but this carpet is charged. The whole room is charged, being pumped subtly with this gnawing, ionic energy. With every step we're taking, you can feel it. The static building on top of your skin, tingling up your legs, making every hair stand on end it's supposed to. You'll learn this soon enough, but in this world, electricity is one of the biggest indicators of Saivo's presence. The physical sensation you are feeling is supposed to be the beginning of an intensely spiritual experience. I won't presume to tell you what to believe or even what to feel, but look at Vega. Watch her as she tucks the plastic sword into her waistband and creeps slowly on all fours to the raised glass altar in the center of the room. The lights haven't turned on in here yet. She's programmed the house not to give her away in moments like these, but you can see her in the glow of the glass cases that line the room. Approaching the dais where a wooden chest encrusted with gold symbols is gleaming with its own light, it certainly looks like something reverent is happening for her. She kneels before the chest. Underneath its lid, the last cousin has squished himself in its narrow confines. Cousin Milo. Fool. Sure, he's only four years old in this flashback, but he definitely knows better than to be playing around in this room. But Milo was also Uncle Jackson's only child, and the grand majority of his four years have been spent in this room with his father, the priest. Of course, his mind would think this was the ultimate hiding spot. I'll tell you a secret. The guesses at Milo's whereabouts that Vega had given the found ones earlier today were all fake. She'd known the whole time that he was here. She wanted the others to think that Milo had foiled her, that he was always found last because he was the best at hiding. But he wasn't. He was actually really bad at it. No, the truth was that Vega was also an only child, and she felt that her dweebly younger cousin was the closest thing she had to a brother. So, naturally, he was the one she always singled out for this special moment of acute physical abuse. She opens the chest and peers inside to see nothing. He's not there. But she doesn't move because out of the corner of her eye, she sees him crawling toward the door in the dark. She rolls off the dais and lands on one of the soft prayer mats. Silently, she follows. Okay, think about what's happening here. Two kids with a lot of exposed skin are crawling on an electrified shag rug and one is about to tackle the other. Vega certainly thought about it because you can see her splaying out her fingers and gathering electric energy as she crawls. She is about to static shock the out of her baby cousin. Oops, she bumps into a pillar. Nothing falls, nothing breaks, but her cover is blown. Milo knows she's on to him. He scrambles, Vega lunges. The other kids open the door and start screaming bloody murder. And at the full extent of her lunge,
crunch, her arms outstretch, the tippity tip of Vegas index finger connects with Milo's chunky little leg and... Holy crap! Milo is cracked with an electrical snap so powerful that his feet literally leave the ground and he flies. Then he slides into the hall, onto his butt, howling in pain. Vega, carried away by her lust for blood, flies out into the hallway like a girl possessed. Her static charged hair standing on end around her head, her plastic sword singing a sweet aria as she swings it back above her head and brings it down to silence Milo's belligerent screams. It's Uncle Jackson. He came out of nowhere, thrust himself into the circle of kids, and ripped Vega's sword from her hands. He looks mad. None of the kids have ever seen him like this. Even Milo, who adores his father, is staring up at him in fear, the pain of his electrical burn forgotten. Jackson pulls Milo roughly from the ground. Uncle Jackson, it was just a game. I wasn't going to hurt him, I swear, Vega says. Jackson stops, his back to her. You can feel the silent, simmering rage emanating from his body. He sets Milo on his feet. Come, Milo. Uncle Jackson, why do you lie to me? Okay, I'm just gonna say real quick, just for your benefit, Vega hadn't meant to say that. She meant to say, why don't you like me? But the moment the words left her mouth, she realized it. Yeah, actually those were the right ones. I don't think she even ever put it together until this moment that that's what it was. She'd always been good with her instincts, able to read people. All those years when Jackson gave her her blessing, his weirdness, his inability to look at her, that shame. It hadn't belonged to her. It was his. When you give me my prophecy, every year you lie to me. Why? And as you just saw, he walked away. Okay, we're back in the machine and we gotta move. I got a little indulgent with the last thing and now we're late. To save time, aggressive flybys. Year 15. That same night, Jackson spills the beans, the prophecy, the one he never told, the same one since she was six. The whole thing, just one word, blood. Mm -hmm. That's right, blood. What a word. What's that mean? She don't know. Why'd he lie? We don't know. Will it inform the rest of her life? We're getting there. All you need to know is that after year 15, everything seemed to change for the better. Suddenly, Vegas prophecies got specific. She got a new purse, she got a boyfriend, she had the level of maturity where she ain't gotta compare her body to other women's bodies to validate a false sense of superiority. But most importantly, Vega and Jackson got cool. Or at least much less awkward. And by the time Vega left her higher levels of learning, Jackson actually cried more than Galex did. And this is where we stop again, with Vega coming back for a day holiday a year into her higher levels, walking up to the chapeleteria as Jackson is setting up for the festivities. She's walking up to him in the light of the early morning as the chap glistens with morning dew. It's a really magical moment, and because Vega knows no other way to begin the terrible conversation they're about to have, she just takes out her data link and goes for it. Listener, you've seen that image before. She's showing him her badge. A long and awkward pause ensues, and then Jackson says, You're a hunter. In training, Vega says, Damn, listener, look at your face right now. 
I totally got you. Because I bet you thought when we started doing the whole flashback thing that I was going to show you Vega trying out for the league, doing all that rookie stuff, achieving her 100 origin stories and shit. Nope, I didn't tell you that stuff on purpose because I wanted you to feel the utter surprise that Uncle Jackson is feeling right now as Vega is telling him this news. Or at least the utter surprise he should be feeling. He's a hard guy to read, but does it kind of seem like he's not surprised at all to be hearing this? Judging by the way his face just tightened up, I don't think surprise is at all what he's feeling. He sets down a metal knife that he's been using to sever a set of copper conduction wires. So you passed the trial, he says. And Vega goes, I passed all my trials, with distinctions, actually, which nobody is surprised about. I don't have to tell you, nobody at the Academy finds it impressive at all when a Rex does anything. Well, it's in our blood, or whatever. Which takes all the fun out of being good at literally anything. <clears throat> but everyone admits I have an aptitude beyond my genetics. They all think I can be really good at, um the job. But of course that's all dependent on how the field work goes. I'm a training hunter. Perspective. Nothing's official yet. She's basically scouting me right now. Uh, she's apparently like one of the best in the league and she's like one of the most gorgeous people I've ever seen in my life. Like why and how and geez. Maybe you met her. Uh, Petra? I don't know if you've, if, if you're familiar. Um, with Petra. She knows you. Everyone knows you. They all know you're the guy to call for a real sacred ceremony. They know you're real good with the old electric orb. I actually, I've never asked you, do you take requests? You passed the trial, Jackson says again, more insistent this time. Yeah, I'm graduating, actually, Uncle Jackson. You can tell Vega's getting annoyed now. I'm applying for graduation out of the academy and part of the application, part of the process, I need a letter from you. I came here to get your blessing. How was the kill? This takes Vega back. Excuse me, she says. I've been to the holy city, Vega. Or did you think I didn't know what they make you do in your trial? How was the kill? Was it hot or was it cold? Because it's supposed to be cold. That's the sacred way, according to tradition, according to all the literature. I've read the literature, she says. So then how was it? I don't know, she stammers. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell. He throws open his arms. You couldn't tell. It's cold. She is trying her hardest to blow him off right now. Whatever. It was cold. Uncle Jackson lets out a little <laughs> then uses one of his hands to rub his nose in his mouth. He turns away. Well, good for you, he says. What is your problem, Uncle Jackson? Vega steps forward. Do you have some sort of opinion that you want to share? Because I don't see how you would. You're a priest. You're a Sivan priest. I'm literally following the orders of the god that you also follow. Why, why do I feel like you're judging me right now? Rid the world of evil, he says, turning back. That was the mandate that Saibo gave. Evil, not people. For the second time in the conversation, Vega is taken aback. Some people are evil. How else would you get rid of them? People can change, he says. Oh, pfft, Vega begins. But Jackson holds up a hand, his eyes narrowing. Do not blow me off, Vega. I am serious. There were hunters who believed that once. 
And as far as I'm concerned, they were the only ones who ever truly carried out Saibo's instructions. They were the real heroes. They were the ones who did real good in the world. You have no idea how far this is from what Saibo wants. How he yearns for hunters who are truly holy and not this. Not these... These murderers who keep tumbling out of that siphon-forsaken, propaganda-shilling, blood barn that they call the Academy. Whoa. Listener, he's probably never said that to anyone before. I don't know if I even have the time to impress upon you how scandalous what he's saying is right now and how much more scandalous it is that he's the one who's saying these things. No decent Sivan would ever say things like this, and certainly no decent Sivan priest. You can see Vega choosing her next words very carefully. Uncle Jackson, those heroes you're talking about? They were heretics, and look what happened to them. They all died out, and the rest of us carry on to do the hard work. Hard work, he scoffs. Yes! Do you have any idea how hard it is to take someone's life? It's not for everyone. In fact, it's hardly for anyone. You have no idea how hard that test was for me. Oh, was it hard, Vega? And what is harder? He holds up two fingers, pointing them like a gun in the air, his face intense. To take a shot to a man's chest? Or to do everything in your power to convince him not to take it to anybody else's? To preserve a life, even... A broken and twisted life that seems mangled beyond anyone's repair. That's hard. But, my dear little one, you will never convince me it is not right. Vega just stares at him. He lets out some air and almost defeated leans against the stone cutting board he'd been using. He's only 52 in this memory, but for a moment he looks far older than that. I knew, he says. I knew if I told you your prophecy it would come to this. And Vega just shakes her head, smiling almost. Thousands of people have been hunting for thousands of years, and somehow, when I want to do it, I have to get the blessing of the one priest in the whole country who doesn't believe in his own religion. <laughs> Fine, whatever, I'll just be an engineer. But you know what, listener? For the rest of her days, Vega is going to wish she had not said this next thing. But alas, we're the one with the time machine, and there are just some things in life that you can't take back. At least for the rest of my life, I'll know that I did more for Saivo in two seconds than you have done for him your entire life. So, we'll both have fun with that. She turns around to go, and that, that is when Uncle Jackson does it. He sent her a message. Vega looks down at her link at the intake cabinet. Reading what she finds there, her mouth drops open. She turns around, shocked. What is this? She says. Your blessing, Jackson says, without a touch of emotion. I don't understand, Vega says, tears forming behind her eyes. How can you give me this? 
looking back at this moment, Vega had a thousand conjectures. Maybe he'd talked to someone about this. Maybe he'd sat with this decision, the inevitability of her destiny for far longer than she ever had. Maybe somebody told him that he had to let her make her own decisions for her life and live in the way that she thought was best. Maybe. But here's what Uncle Jackson said. I don't believe in hunters, Vega. I don't believe in killing. But I believe in you. Fast forward. Six years and 400 kills later. But why am I telling you? You know what happens next. Vega, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, you're safe. Lila, where am I? You're in the healing house in the holy city. You've been unconscious since the attack. The healers have been keeping you in cryostasis while you recovered. You've been under for three days. Where is my... Your family is together in Rx. They're recovering from the attack. Your father has been calling every hour. Vega. They were targeting the priests. He shot your uncle. He killed Jackson. Then he killed himself. No. He didn't. Lila looks at her, confused. The shooter's alive. And I'm going to find him. Oh my gosh. Do you guys remember when I was all like, the next episode is going to be released on December 15th, but then it didn't actually come out until March 15th? It's hilarious, right? It's a real good one. <laughs> I won't apologize for art, but I do hope that it was worth the wait. This episode featured music from Hill, Brightseed, D. Yan Key, and the newest member of the Vega Podcast Production Squad, Dusty Hall. Dusty composed the music for the telling of the prophecy scene, as well as that hella vibey piece you heard running through that static shock sequence. He also provided additional sound effects and did a little audio cleanup for us on this episode, so I'm really excited to have him on the team and for you guys to hear more and more of his musical brilliance. I will be launching a website and a Patreon soon, so be on the lookout for that. And there's one more secret thing in the works that I don't want to tell you about just yet, but that I hope to be telling you about very, very soon, a new kind of episode for the listeners having a lot of fun with the world. And I'll tell you about this a lot sooner than in three months, I promise. As always, thank you so much for listening. The response I've gotten so far with just the first five episodes have been so much more than I was expecting. And though I am so horrible at keeping up on social media, please know that I see you and that I love you. I will catch you next time, yeah? The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Welcome to Beyond the Dark. Sub-level 19 was nothing like the other floors at Machinko. There were no alabaster workbenches, no spotless white carpets. Here, it was dank, dark, 
humming, throbbing sound like a sickly heartbeat hiding behind the whir of a great machine. A large metal cage loomed out of the darkness, backlit by an iridescent blue monitor, on which a cursor blinked idly. A metal panel slid out of an aperture in the cage near the monitor, and suddenly the cursor came to life. It read, Insert hand here. Beyond the Dark, a sci-fi anthology by Mark R. Healy creator of The Strata. Find it at beyondthedarkpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.